Mac Power Users, Episode 246, Workflows with Eddie Smith. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Hey, David. Hello, Katie Floyd. How are you today? I'm doing well, David. How are you? Good. I'm so excited. We finally got the Mac Power Users episode everybody's been waiting to listen to. I I know I've been waiting to listen to it. And I <laughs> I could when you recommended this this workflow guest, I said, what are you talking about? Of course, we've talked to Eddie before. But I went <laughs> back and I looked and apparently we've never had Eddie Smith. We've had him on the show before, I believe, but we've never done a workflow show with Eddie before. So welcome to the show for your workflow debut, Eddie Smith. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah, I think it's. I think the last time was the uh, the Markdown book, if I'm not mistaken, and I think David's probably released at least a hundred field guides since then. Uh, so it's been a while. Yeah, yeah and, something like that. And Eddie, you haven't released a single field guide that, since then, you slacker. I know, I know. Well, you know, it makes it clear that David did all the work on that one. So, <laughs> uh, Eddie, I but look, forget the Markdown thing. I, I want to talk about <laughs> tell people what you do for a living. Well, I am an actuary and. It, you know, even before I was a more non-traditional actuary, that was always a hard thing to say because uh, if I was lucky, I would just get kind of a weird look and then I would quickly change the subject and talk about something more interesting. But, you know, a lot of times people ask me more questions. So, like you know, people perhaps ask me what an actuary what does. is an actuary? Yes, well, before yes. we even explain that, because I, I think we have to interject here, everyone, do not stop this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie is a super nerd, and he has this job that involves words and math, and he's tying all this stuff together with some great tools. But it always felt like when every time I meet an actuary, I, I thought it, the word was actuarian. You, you, until you, Eddie you know told more me, than one actuary? I actually know several. Words. You know, in the day job, I bump into these people once in a while. And the... um. Uh, Eddie told me the word actuarian is actually what somebody who eats an actuary. That's right. That's right. Okay, somebody so who eats an actuaries and an actuarian. Yeah. So actuary, like I said, is the noun that that's you know the person who's an actuary, and then the adjective is actuarial. That describes the work that an actuary does. And I bring that up because even when I was in more of a traditional, uh, you know, insurance company environment, very few people outside of the actuarial department understood that. And they would just use the word actuary all the time. They would use that to refer to multiple actuaries at once. Uh, kind of like, I guess, moose is like, you know, the, the both the singular and plural uh, for moose, right? Is that right? Yeah. Or is it moose? Maybe, I'm, maybe I got that mixed up. But anyway, so, so yes, I'm an please, actuary. Please email um, me. Please, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm changing my email addresses right now. But anyway, so... So, yeah, actuaries, I mean, you know, they typically work in insurance companies, but not always. Um, and, you know, actuaries are the ones that calculate premiums for insurance products. But more generally than that, actuaries. You find are, out when people are going to die, right? Well, I mean, sort of, sort of. I mean, you make, you know, sort of good guesses about what populations of people uh, will do. A lot of people, in fact, I've even seen doctors come to actuaries and say, I really need to know how to predict the life expectancy of somebody and it just doesn't work that way it's you know we don't do point estimate type you know guesses for specific people it's more about making very good guesses for populations of people these the insurance products require lots of people to be involved uh, for the numbers to work out so um, but it's really about risk management it's about you know running big computer models and 
it's finance, it's accounting, it's probability theory, it's a lot of numbers, and it's interesting work, obviously, if you like math and numbers and, you know, problem solving is really what it's about. It's also a great cover if you're actually a bookie, right? Exactly. In fact, yeah, actuaries fall into two groups when it comes to gambling. Um, Most actuaries are totally averse to gambling because they know that things are rigged in the house's favor and they just don't enjoy playing that kind of game. But I know actuaries who are actually really good gamblers because they understand the numbers and they understand which games give them a little bit more of an advantage. So, you know, it's the more you know, I guess. <laughs> so, folks, that's really what this entire workflow episode is all about. Eddie's going to give us uh, <laughs> tips and tricks uh, for maximizing your gambling. <laughs> there you go. At the end of the episode, he's going to announce when I'm going to die. <laughs> exactly. So stay tuned. <laughs> No, <laughs> um, but the uh, but it, it is interesting in the fact that that you get what I think is interesting about your business. And what I was going to say earlier is I've met these actuaries in the past, and everybody's always apologetic about the job. Maybe it's like the um, you know the incredible scene, you know, with the insurance company and the guys getting mugged, and the boss is saying, you know, we're here for shareholders. I don't know what it is. It seems like a lot of actuaries don't really know how to describe what they do. But but knowing Eddie for several years now, and him and I have these regular calls where we talk to each other and catch up, it's really amazing to me how he's able to incorporate so much Apple technology into excelling at his job. And a lot of these are tools that we all use every day. But Eddie has found some really interesting ways to tie them together. So I thought, why, why the heck not? Let's do a show with an actuary. But there's only one actuary in the world we would do it with, and that's Eddie Smith. So, so welcome to the show, Eddie. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, and go ahead. Eddie. And I was going to say more. You know, and I was in more of a traditional actuarial role for about ten years, and I was, you know, doing some work on the side with the company called the Infinite Actuary, which is a company I'm full time with now. And um, really, our company. Um, evolved to sort of meet the uh, needs of people who are taking actuarial exams. And really what I do now is really more education. Um, and, and that probably is a little more relevant uh, probably to a lot of people listening to the show um, because the work I do is kind of a nice blend between sort of academic type, type of work and also more entrepreneurial type of work because it is a small company. We're very lean and, you know, we're developing products that we sell directly to people Uh, to help them pass actuarial exams. There's a whole little market that exists around the exam process because the exams, to become an actuary, you have to pass lots of exams. And they're very hard. They're not like uh, exams you take in college where if you study hard, you'll get an A. Uh, They're not like a lot of professional exams where the pass rates are like 80 90%. Um, The pass rates on actuarial exams uh, even for people who are well prepared, I mean, you know, it's a population of people who are very smart, very well prepared, and the pass rates may only be like thirty to forty percent for a given wow. exam. And there's lots of these exams, and so it's a really long road uh, to pass all these exams. And so there's this whole market around helping people pass, and so we develop products to help people pass the exams. Well, one of the things I think is interesting about this business is not only do you have to have the statistics and math abilities, you also have to have the ability to communicate it. Exactly. And yeah. So how are you doing that? With the yeah. Stuff you're so, doing? right. So our core product is are really, you know, web based videos. Um, our company was the first one. I mean, in hindsight, it seems obvious to do this stuff online, but 
up until about 2007, the way you prepared for an actuarial exam was you, you know, flew to a major city, Chicago, New York, Boston, and, you know, you sat in a room with a few hundred other people and you had material poured down your throat for like five straight days. And if you're lucky, you might retain 10% of it. So now we do, you know, uh, a web-based product that's available, you know, year-round and people uh, literally all over the world use our products whenever they want, all hours of the night and day. And um, it's just more of an on-demand thing. But our core product are these video-based, we call them seminars, which is just a word that's carried over from the days when this was an in-person, you know, live event. And we, depending on the nature of the exam, because the exams are, are all very different, but you know, the, the main thing they have in common is they're very difficult. Uh, they're based on very technical readings, difficult math concepts, uh, difficult legal concepts, insurance concepts. Um, the syllabus may have two to 3,000 pages of reading uh, that the uh, actuarial students have to get through. That's sort of your moniker when you're taking actuarial exams. You're called a student. And we take that material and we simplify it and make it more uniform. Uh, we create study manuals and then these videos where, you know, you hear our voice. We we illustrate things. We create graphics. We create practice problems. We try to make it as interactive as possible. And, you know, for what we do, it's actually very cutting edge. No one has really, you know, was doing this kind of stuff before we did. Uh, it really kind of brings the material to life and makes it a lot more interesting and engaging and it increases the chances that somebody will, you know, remember what they need to actually pass the exam. All right. So let's break that down. The first thing you were talking about is the written materials. And right. one of the things you use for your written materials, and I, I don't even know how to pronounce it, it's latex or latex. I've heard it re, uh, pronounced both ways. Right. So um, the word, the root of that is tech, T-E-X. And that's the part you you want to make sure you get right if you're around somebody that's really like... Uh, a LaTeX purist. The prefix LA, uh, it, it's kind of divided. It's totally acceptable to say LaTeX or LaTeX. I tend to say LaTeX most of the time, but sometimes I say LaTeX. But yeah, it's the key thing is the X is a K. It's a K. <laughs> yeah. Well, and but, we have a, a lot of listeners who are in the university settings, research settings, who work in this stuff all the time. And mm -hmm. we've we've danced around it on the show. I've even got written down on our list of potential show topics one day is an entire show on it because I mm -hmm. know that there's a lot of people that really love it. But I don't know that I can that I have enough information to share for an hour. So let's take a minute and talk about that. So you're using lit LaTeX uh, mm -hmm. to generate all these written materials. That's right. That's right. Okay, and so, so give us a 20,000 foot view. What is LaTeX? Right. So LaTeX, it's a text-based file format. Okay. So you can open it in any text editor and it's very readable. And what it is, you know, if you're old enough to remember what word processing looked like in the 90s before the WYSIWYG stuff caught on. If you remember, you had to, um, you know, like if you wanted a heading to look a certain way, you, you would put codes at the front of your document. And, you know, if you're familiar with putting codes into the text, then that's kind of what LaTeX is like. Kind of like and old word perfect. Kind of like that, yeah. And that's not to to diminish its value, though, that's really what makes it so powerful because there's a learning curve with it. And if you're familiar with WYSIWYG word processing, it can be intimidating. But if you can learn LaTeX, you can create the most, you know, 
stylistically beautiful PDFs, in my opinion, that you can create with any kind of application that creates PDFs. And uh, the key advantage for me is it allows me to create, I mean, some of these study manuals that I create are hundreds of pages long. And I've attempted in the past to do these things and, you know, like a word word processor like Word, and they fall apart, especially if it's something that you're going to be editing a lot over time. I mean, it will literally collapse under its own weight, but but LaTeX is is so well constructed. It is something that did grow out of the academic community, and it really is like an enormous subject. And I use it all the time, but I don't even pretend to be. I wouldn't call myself an expert in it because it it is so extendable and has so many different nuances to it. But um, but it's similar. So it's similar to Markdown in that it's text based which gives it infinite longevity, which is one of the things I like about it is I don't ever have to worry about, you know, some upgrade uh, to pages or Word or whatever, uh, making it impossible for me to go back and, you know, use something that I created years ago. So it's text-based, which is nice. And it Um, also makes it nice if you work on iOS, because really text is the best format to move words between these two platforms. Yes, although the the LaTeX editors for iOS so far have disappointed me mostly. I don't do a lot of LaTeX coding on an iOS device, although because it is plain text, um, if all I'm doing is writing out just words, you know, paragraphs, then I, I will totally, you know, do, you know, something in iOS and just copy and paste it into a LaTeX uh, file. And just with a little bit of manipulation, it's ready to go. Yeah, just um, on that point, why would you need a LaTeX editor on iOS? I mean, if it's just text-based, couldn't you just do it in ByWord or Ulysses or whatever your editorial, whatever your text uh, editor is of choice? A um, couple things. Um, this, something that does syntax highlighting is nice uh, because if you've got a lot of codes in there, it's nice to be able to distinguish between, you know, sort of the computer, not computer code, but the LaTeX code and commands. It's nice to be able to distinguish between those and the text you're writing. Um, and then the other thing is, is if you're doing a lot of LaTeX writing, you have to typeset it. Uh, and, and that's actually the process of creating the PDF from it. And, you know, it's a good idea to typeset it every now and then to kind of see where you're headed. Uh, or see the result of what you're doing, especially if you're trying to write like a math equation or something. Um, LaTeX is is far superior to, to Word or anything else when it comes to writing math equations. I mean, it just has, it's really what it's built for uh, is to render, you know, technical documents in, in the right format. Um, yeah, I, but I, I, know, I know from personal experience, just talking to some of our listeners that that, especially mathematicians, engineers, that that is just, you know, required for the type of writing they do, that there's no, there really is no other way that they could do it. Absolutely. And it makes, and for the final product that I generate, it, it makes such a world of difference because um, unfortunately, a lot of actuaries don't use LaTeX and they'll just use Word and they'll try to write these, these uh, even simple equations, maybe that has a fraction or a compound fraction in it. And they'll try to do it with like backslashes and stuff in the, in like inline in the text and you have to read it like for five minutes before you really understand what they were trying to say. Whereas if you typeset it the way it should be and format it correctly, you know, you get it immediately. And, okay, and that's so you, a that's a big deal for what I do because I'm trying to make people's lives easier. That's really what I'm selling is is convenience. You <laughs> yeah, keep that, saying the word typeset and it's like pushing my analog buttons. What, what do you mean when you say typeset? 
So, all right. So the the LaTeX file, it's it's a text file, and for you, and you're trying to create a PDF from it. Okay, so you need some way of going from the tech file to a PDF, and in in LaTeX terminology, that's called typesetting. Uh, that's just you know, and I use Sublime Text Two as my primary editor, and uh, in Sublime Text Two, I just hit Command B, and it's linked up. Um, with a not to jump ahead, but it's linked up with an app called Skim, which is a free PDF editor. Very good. I mean, sorry, uh, PDF viewer and uh, very well made PDF viewer. And the nice thing about Skim is uh, it's got some extra stuff in its preference settings that allows you to link it to Sublime Text 2. And so when I hit Command B in, in Sublime Text 2, I see my PDF appear in Skim, which is my final product or what I'm moving toward. And I can even read the PDF, and if I see, you know, on page 34, oh, I've got a typo, I can, um, I think it's Command-Shift-Click the PDF and skim, and it jumps me to the exact spot in the tech file in Sublime Text 2. So you still get the WYSIWYG aspect, which is nice, because you get to, you know, view practically in real time what you're creating, and you have the ability to edit it, you know, so you kind of have these two windows side by side. And um, it's it's a great workflow. It sounds like extra work, but the product you get, and I mean, the PDFs that LaTeX creates, I mean, I, I create large PDFs, and I like for them to have a nice table of contents. I like for them to have a hierarchical, you know, bookmark structure in them. I like for cross-references to be hyperlinked and all that, and LaTeX handles all of that in spades. And, yeah, I can rearrange the order of files and I know the page numbering will fall out correctly, and um, it's just a great way to manage really large technical documents. Well, so get, it, let it, me get – maybe ahead. you're going here, but let me get a little more basic. So, you know, let's say I'm, I'm writing a document that is mainly text, you know, 85 90 percent just what I would call plain text. But then mm-hmm. you, you do throw in some equations. You know, you do throw in some examples. Are, are you writing that – in lot or in sublime text too? Are you writing that in something else and then pasting it in? And then what, so is it just a normal word processor up until the point that you, you get to that equation that you have to, to plug in? And then h- how does it differentiate? How does it flip to then becoming kind of an equation editor or, or is it all built in? It's, it's really all built in. And if you're mostly writing text, then if you look at a LaTeX file, or let's pick an extreme where it's all text, it's just paragraphs. If you looked at that LaTeX file, it would look like a markdown file. It would just be block paragraphs separated by a line. And, you know, and then when you, you know, if you wanted to add an equation, there's just some syntax for that. I mean, there's just syntax for things like Greek symbols and fractions and you know, all the crazy things that you see, you know, in higher math. But is it, and, I guess what I'm asking, is it, is it was a wig? I mean, does, do I need to know what the syntax is for, uh, you know, yes. I'm, I'm not a math person. <laughs> do I need to know what the syntax is for this particular symbol? Or can I say, okay, I need this symbol or, and can I like build my equation to make it look like what I want it to make it? Or do I have to like learn a different language to be able to plug this in? It's, it's a little bit like learning a language because you do need to know your symbols, but this is where sublime text to, is like magic because once you start to get familiar with the things that you're doing a lot, like if you're writing out, you know, the Black-Scholes formula, you know, for pricing call options and put options or something, I just throw that one out because it's popular. If you're finding yourself doing that one a lot, you can create snippets in Sublime Text too 
uh, that allow you to just type a few characters, much like Text Expander, and then you hit Tab and they expand. The difference between Sublime Text 2 and Text Expander with snippets is uh, Sublime Text 2 has um, multiple cursors, and so your cursor can be at multiple places at the same time, which is useful uh, for for entering certain types of things. And so I guess the, the what I'm trying to say, I guess, to answer your question is uh, you need to learn the language, but you pick it up pretty quickly, and then there are ways of really automating you know, typing out these codes. Some of them are long, but, you know, with the right automation tools like Sublime Text 2 Snippets, and I also use Text Expander still a lot, too, with it. Uh, it actually starts to go really, really fast, surprisingly fast. Because I would imagine, depending on your industry, you're probably going to be using the same types of equations. I mean, probably not the exact same formulas and the exact same equations, but the same types so your formula, your your, um, I, I hate to use the same word again, but the the same symbols and the same language that you're going to be using are going to be similar. Um, to some extent, yeah. Um, although I still find myself writing unique things quite a bit, but but the components of the equations are often very similar. You right. Know, I same, guess that's a better phrasing. Yeah. Of what I meant. Yeah. Right. The same Greek symbols, but. Um, the other thing worth mentioning with, with LaTeX, I guess, is an argument over a traditional word processor, uh, is a package. It's the primary graphics package for LaTeX is a package called Tix. At least that's how I say it. It's, it's spelled T-I-K-Z, T-I-K-Z. And it's a way of creating, uh, custom graphics. Now, it has an even worse learning curve. I mean, it took me a solid year or more to get to the point where I could really create a text graphic quickly. But you can create, and if you Google, you know, examples of text graphics, I mean, you will find what people create an incredibly intricate custom graphics. And, and the power of that is that it's all in the LaTeX code. It's just a text-based code. It's almost like vector graphics in that, you know, it's there's just underlying text code that, you know, drives some engine to output this, you know, in a graphical format and the nice thing about that is I can create a graphic for one document and then just copy paste the text into another document if I need to. So if I create a study manual and I want this nice graph and I've got this nice color shading and stuff and I want that to appear uh, in my videos, which reside, you know, in a separate, you know, structure, then I just, you know, paste that in and the scaling comes out perfectly and the the fonts are consistent with the body. I mean, you see these you know, these these technical papers that people publish and, you know, all they do is throw in like a chart from Excel and it's got Arial, whereas the body has, you know, uh, Times New Roman with a completely different size font. And it just looks sloppy. Uh, but, but, you know, LaTeX is really designed to, to make it more stylistically consistent uh, throughout the whole document. And, and that goes for graphics as well as headings and, and every aspect of the document, really. Now, I would imagine that the language is similar to Markdown and that once you're writing in the LaTeX language, that it's it's universal. So if you're using Sublime Text for your LaTeX editor and I'm on a PC, not me, obviously, but the hypothetical somebody else you're consulting with um, is on a PC using some other uh you know, program that you can swap files back and forth just like you could swap Markdown files back and forth? Exactly. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's platform independent. It's editor independent. In fact, you could write LaTeX in text edit 
and typeset it at the command line, you know, using uh, you to, for it to work on your Mac. Kind of skipped over some steps, but for it to work on your Mac, you do need to download the Mac distribution of LaTeX, which is called MacTech, and uh, it's free. It's totally free. This stuff's all open source. Um, but but yeah, it's totally independent, which is another thing that that makes it, it gives it a lot of longevity. So probably a lot of a lot of use for this in academics, a lot of use for this in engineering, a lot of use for this in insurance. You know, anybody who has to write uh, with uh, formulas and equations, uh, any kind of mathematical field, uh, this is going to be a program that they're going to need. And it sounds like once you're done consulting with whoever you're working with on a file or a file that you're using independently, then the ultimate output is going to be to PDF because it, you're then going to be sharing that with whoever. That's right. Yep. The destination is definitely PDF. Yeah, that's our, our publishing format for our handouts, for sure. Yep. Well, that's impressive that it also embeds like the table of contents builds and all this other stuff with just writing it in LaTeX to begin with. Exactly. Exactly. It it really creates the most complete, robust PDFs that, that I've you know experienced. And I mean, a lot of these things are possible in other programs but you have to know a lot of tricks and um but it 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 just kind of knows sort of the ideal form that a pdf should be and and the pdf they tend to be very clean you know sometimes you'll get a pdf and you'll try to search it and there's junk in there and you know preview won't find a keyword or something and that never happens with latex it just creates a really clean pdf i want to um this is what I call the double T's. I want to talk about sublime text and the idea of multiple cursors in a text editor, because that just kind of blew my mind when you said that. Right. And, and I also work, just want to let everybody know at the end of the show, we didn't put it at the beginning because we know some people may be tired of hearing about this stuff, but Katie and I are going to talk about, and Eddie, about the <laughs> Apple watch announcement and the new MacBook announcement. We've got some thoughts on that. And Katie has a struggle in her life that she wants to share with us all. <laughs> uh, but, but before we do that, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor. Yeah, our first sponsor for this episode uh, is Gazelle. And Gazelle is the fast and simple way to sell your used gadgets online. So if you've got an iPhone, an iPad, or maybe a MacBook Air that you think you might be getting rid of at some point in the near future, uh, you need to go check out gazelle.com to find out what your gadget is worth. Uh, and also from Gazelle, if you're in the market to buy a pre-owned uh, iPhone or iPad, or even some Samsung Galaxy phones, uh, you can do that on gazelle.com. If you've lost or broken your phone, uh, or uh, maybe your phone has taken a dive somewhere, uh, you can go get it replaced a lot less expensively than it would cost you to go buy a new phone by getting a certified pre-owned device from Gazelle. And a friend of mine just did that. They uh, went and bought some uh, pre-owned certified phones off of Gazelle, and they were so happy with the experience that they went back again and bought a couple of iPads and brought this um, box into my office when it arrived. And these things were in amazing condition. It looked like they were brand new out of the box. Uh, so Gazelle, uh, what you probably know them originally for, they still do. They still offer great deals on trade-ins for your own device. So you can visit gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com, to see what your device is worth. And while you're there, see what's available from them uh, in their certified pre-owned devices. 
Devices are available in two conditions. They've got uh, certified like new and certified good. Uh, the good devices are going to show some signs of gentle wear and tear, but they give you what you want and you can save a little extra money um, and get a great device at a great price. Uh, all the devices have been put through a rigorous 30-point inspection to ensure that they're fully functional, and they come with a 30-day risk-free return policy. And if you've got something that you're looking to get rid of, uh, maybe your device can turn into one of these uh, 30-day uh, risk-free certified devices. Uh, you can turn your device into Gazelle and get paid in cash. Uh, payment is fast, usually within a few days or always within a few days of your device being received. It is risk-free. Uh, you can go to Gazelle and lock in a price for your device. And they'll even take care of wiping your data for you if you need to. Uh, Gazelle has paid out nearly $175 million to over 1 million customers. It is easy. It is free shipping. And most customers will even get a free box. So go check them out. See what your iPhone is worth. Uh, if you need to go pick up a new iPhone or a new iPad, they can take care of that too. Go to gazelle.com. That's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com to find out what your device is worth. Uh, and tell them that Mac Power users sent you. You know, Eddie, uh, we don't talk about religion or politics on the show, but we do talk about text editors, and sometimes it has the same effect. <laughs> it it <laughs> definitely can, yeah. And I think, you know, we've had a lot of people on the show talking about BB Edit and um, various text editors over the years. Not too many people have been on the show talking about Sublime Text, and um, I know that kind of Sublime Text kind of took over the mantle as, uh, what was it, TextMate? Was TextMate the one that... Uh, Kind of went yeah, yeah, and text, yeah, and TextMate is actually what I used for LaTeX coding before I found Sublime Text too. So yeah, and and yeah. a lot of people have migrated over Sublime Text. Sublime Text too is great in in some ways because it's multi-platform. So if someone's working on both Windows and Mac, it's a nice system to use because you're going to have the same tools on both platforms. Um, but they also have a lot of their own, you know, interesting features. And this first one you mentioned was multiple cursors. I don't even understand how that works, Eddie Smith. What does that mean? <laughs> well, the first time my, I my, used... my brain is single threaded, just so you know. Yeah. yeah, it sounds crazy. And it's one of those things where, like, you don't really appreciate it until you use it. But as soon as I saw that in action and tried it for myself, I knew that this was going to be the text editor for me. And so so basically what it is, is it gives you a way to make basically multiple selections or have multiple cursors on the screen. And once you have, let's say, your cursor in three different places, anything you do with your keyboard will be done in those three places. So if you need a word to appear in three places simultaneously and you have three cursors and you type that word, it will appear in those three places. Um, what makes it very useful uh, for any type of coding, maybe you have a variable, okay, uh, that appears in multiple places. Uh, you can select that word, and then you hit Command D in Sublime Text 2. And every time you hit Command D, it will select the next instance of that word. And so if I want to change a word in those three places or five places, very quickly, I just select one, and then Command D, Command D, Command D, however many times, and then I can change them all at once. But once you start to use it, you start to realize that it really is more of a Swiss Army knife than that. Um, for example, I have a LaTeX plugin that, I'm sorry, a Sublime Text 2 plugin that lets me uh, make text sentence case. Um, and, you know, or, or I can change the case of text if I need to do that. Like I might be typing really quickly and I forgot to capitalize some things. 
So what I can do is find, like if there's a leading character that all these lines have in common, I can select each of those using multiple cursors, and then I can do a full selection of that entire line, and then anything that I do on my keyboard, like any shortcut I do to manipulate the text, it will execute that command in every place where those cursors appear. And for people who do computer coding, I guess they can probably appreciate that the most, just basically being able to do bulk changes you know, in, in multiple places at the same time. So it, it is it is an incredible feature, <laughs> and it's something that I think, you know, really lends itself well to LaTeX coding just because of some of the repetition involved. It's funny because I've done, I've developed over the years all of these very kind of, I think, like to think of them as geeky search and replace hacks. You know, mm-hmm. like search and replace is great in a word processor, text editor, but if you think about it on a bigger scale, like what if you add the space mm-hmm. or, you know, like, or even just all sorts of things like, um, I, I don't like my text editors don't do the enhanced apostrophe and quotation marks. I can do search and replace tricks to fix that or, mm-hmm. you know, or the period with two spaces, replace it with a period with one space. If you just don't like two spaces of your periods. So I thought I was a pro at this and I'm listening to you. I'm thinking, I bet you could go a lot farther with those kind of hacks with multiple cursors. Oh, yeah. It's it's one of those things. You find yourself doing things. It, it almost becomes like an extension of like how you're thinking about your work as you're going through. Because a lot of times your mind will be on more than one line at the same time. And as you start to think in terms of multiple cursors, just it's almost like an interface evolution where you're just it's a more sophisticated interface that allows you to do more with fewer keystrokes, essentially, uh, as you're doing your work. And it's become so ingrained in me that like I'll be in a totally different app. I'll be typing an email and I'll find myself trying to do multiple cursors to try to you know fix something. Um, and uh, the other feature it has that's sort of related is the ability to like you can select a block of text and then if you hit command shift L, it will split the selection uh, for every line in that block. And so then you have a cursor on each line and then you could maybe add like a common leading character to each line or maybe you could capitalize the first letter uh, of each of those lines, you know, without having to go through there one at a time. So it's just you know, it's an amazing time saver and it it really allows you to do a lot more again with fewer keystrokes. Now you do, you also do some writing at your blog Mm -hmm. and what's your URL URL again? Practically efficient.com. Is it .com? I can't remember. Okay. And then do do you like write blog posts with sublime text too? Um, you know, I still, it's so funny. I still mostly write everything for my blog in in NVAlt. Um, and I, I don't know many people that use NVAlt as a word processor, but, um, or as a writing tool like that. Most people just use it for note taking, but I, I compose virtually everything in NVAlt, sometimes in Byword. Um, sometimes now, is I'll that jump. just because of habit or? I think it's just because of habit. I think it's because a lot of the stuff that I write, if I'm writing a blog post, it's stuff that comes into my head and the fastest way I can get it down is through NVAlt. And so that's where that's sort of the genesis of it. And so that's where it usually stays. Um, and it's just, I think you kind of develop these mental 
like, you know, um, relationships with certain apps. It's like, that's where I go to write a blog post, you know? So oh, I get it. That's yeah. just how it works. Yeah. So how big do that your files get in sublime text too? I mean, I don't understand. I don't know how big these, these law tech files are. Like in terms of line count or in terms of file size? Cause the, they're, they're just text files. So, so the, the file, file size, size is, is tiny. Big, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's minimal. Now the line count could, I mean, it could be thousands of lines just depending on, you know, the kind of file it is that I'm making. Um, you know, one other thing that's nice about LaTeX is it's got this command called input. And input is a way of, um, you could have like a master tech file, and then you could have input lines that link in other tech files. And the nice thing about that is, let's say you're writing a book, you know, because that's something I guess everybody could visualize. If you're just working on one chapter, you know, you can just typeset that one chapter. But when you're done, you know, you can uncomment all your inputs, typeset like a master file, and then boom, you've got this hundred or thousand page document that chains together all these individual files. So that's just another efficiency thing. And from a production standpoint, the work I do where um, the, the syllabus that I cover has, you know, as much as 60 or 70 readings and when they update the exams, they'll take readings off, they'll add new readings, and I'm constantly rethinking, like, the order I want things to appear. And in Word, like, if I was doing this in Word, I would have to go in and, like, manually, you know, drag my mouse and copy, you know, a section and, you know, Command X to cut it and then paste it somewhere else in the document. And then inevitably, you know, the format starts yelling at me. But with this, I just move some text lines around you know, in that master file, and I've reorganized this enormous document. And again, all the page numbers fall out correctly, all the formatting falls out correctly. So um, it's just so much better for managing large scale, you know, production kind of PDFs. Yeah, And that, that seems to me like listening to you, the big advantage is production. It just mm-hmm. happens. It just happens. Yeah. Like, like you wouldn't do this. Like if somebody's just creating like one or two page PDFs, I mean, you know, use pages or something like that. And I use pages for things like that. Um, like if I'm just creating something simple to give to somebody, you know, I, I'll use pages or I'll just use PDF pen to kind of stitch together, you know, PDF pages from different sources if I need to do that. So, you know, it, it's important to not, you know, spend a week in LaTeX, you know, to, to typeset a two-page document if you could do the same thing in a different app. I mean, this is this is really more for like, I mean, this is, to me, this is like the big leagues of yeah. PDF production. Well, listening to yeah. you talk about this whole workflow that you've clearly developed for yourself, I, I can't help but think, you know, working in the environment that you do, I, I know is a small setting, a small company, but did you develop any of these workflows for your company or do, are you isolated in such a way that you do your piece and you do it your way? And at the end of the day, you have the production that you're responsible for and you have the piece that you produce. And however, the other um, people in your company produce their work is is up to them and they may do it completely different. Or have you all decided to kind of standardize on this type of workflow? You know, that's a great question. Most of us are moving toward this. Um, You know, it's most of us that are doing like the really big seminars for the big exams are doing some sort of LaTeX workflow. Most of us are using Sublime Text 2 now. And it's been kind of interesting because, you know, we're we're kind of cohesive and that, you know, we we kind of meet up on a regular basis, but we're also 
very autonomous. And it's kind of interesting to me that there's been like some convergence, you know, with these workflows and, and the specific tools that we use, which to me says these are really the right way to do it. You know, uh, you know, things if there was really an infinite number of ways to do it, then we would diverge more. But yeah, I mean, Sublime Text is pretty much our text editor of choice and LaTeX is pretty much, you know, um, the way we're creating most of our materials. Was it a um, Mac shop before you joined or? Yeah. You know, most of us, I mean, it's, it's again, a small company, um, but, but most of us are, are Mac people. And I think that reflects uh, different things. Um, I think it reflects the realities of being like, if you're small and independent and autonomous, um, the Mac is just, it's just so reliable. Um, and then some of the tools that the Mac has like ScreenFlow, which we haven't even talked about. I mean, the, a lot of the videos, you know, all, all the videos I create are in ScreenFlow. And, and for us, we found that's just the best way to create the kind of videos we create. Um, uh, or, or we use Keynote heavily and, and that is just hard to find. And I mean, there's PowerPoint on the PC, but, um, but there's some nice tools on the Mac that pull all those ingredients together to create a product that, that we think is really superior to, you know, what our competitors create and, and really other things that we could do. Well, maybe it's a good time to go ahead and, and move on and talk a little bit about your, your video workflows. But before we do, David, you want to talk about our next sponsor? I'd be happy to. And we've already mentioned them a few times in this episode, and that's our friends at Smile with their product Text Expander. So Text Expander, if you've never heard of it before, is a, is a little application that installs on your Mac or your iPad or your iPhone. And, it, and it'll take your keystrokes, like you can type just a few things like X-T-E-L, so the X-T-E-L for your telephone, and it'll immediately spit out your full telephone number. And there's all sorts of things you're going to be writing on your Mac and your iOS devices that you're going to want to use this way. It's just very powerful. Now, when, when you think of it at the most basic level, you can just substitute one bit of text for the next. But the people at Smile never rest on their loyals. They're always making it better. And uh, this text expander has got some amazing features like advanced snippets with fill-in lines. So I can type an email to someone and say, like, so sorry. And it's got blanks in it that allow me to insert the name of the person I'm sending it to and why I'm sorry. And I, maybe I'll have a list of excuses. Maybe maybe I need that for my wife. I just need a so sorry email for my wife. And I can just list all the things I did wrong, I did wrong and I can pick from them. It can allow you do that. It's got drop-down menus. You can use the clipboard. You can even you can even access the existing clipboard on your Mac or iOS device and just drop in the contents. Um, so all of this is a bit available using Text Expander. Once you get started with the application, uh, you can go from a basic user to an advanced user in very little time at all. I recently heard from a listener of our show who's been listening to our show for years, and she said she, you know, finally went in and bought Text Expander. And in her day job, she's got the need for this fill-in snippet. And she said, well, I finally decided to try it. And the only thing she's mad about is that she didn't do it sooner because she said she's saving hours a week with this advanced tool. And it's really not that hard. Uh, once you get Text Expander installed, you can sync it via Dropbox. So you'll be able to get all those snippets you created both on the Mac your iPhone and your iPad. And on iOS now, they even have a keyboard. And that, that's a really great feature with iOS 8. You know, Katie, when the 
keyboards for sh- sh- when a, a showed up on iOS. I went a little crazy. I had like six of them installed any one time. Uh, I've c- calmed down now, but Text Expander definitely made the cut for me. Um, I'm responding to email uh, to Mac Sparky readers and Mac Power users, listeners, and when I need a snippet, I just hit that keyboard and I can type it in in the native mail app, and it works like a charm. So Text Expander really is the preferred tool if you want to use any type of text expansion. And if you haven't tried it yet, go do it now. Don't be that listener who's really upset because she waited so long. Go go try it out now. Let them know you heard about it from us. You can learn more over at smilesoftware.com. And um, thank you, Text Expander, for supporting the show. So, Eddie, I, I, half of your job, or maybe more than half, but part of your job is preparing all of these written materials for your students. And I guess I'll call them your students. Mm-hmm. But the other portion of it is you, you also do some some video presentations because that's really how you present your material is a combination of, of here's the written material that we're giving you uh, and here's a, a video presentation. So you're you're really pulling double duty here. And on one hand, you're writing. And then on the other hand, you're also presenting this material. So tell us a little bit about some of the video production stuff that wh- what's your what's your video set up? Yeah, so, uh, and, and yeah, video really is the core product. Um, the written materials, in my mind, are all really accessories to the videos because uh, video just is such a great opportunity to explain really difficult things, which are the things we're covering on these exams, uh, in this format that allows somebody to watch it on demand. It gives me an opportunity to illustrate something and just verbalize something that you can't just do like in a PDF document. And so um, we use ScreenFlow. Uh, we, we record our voice. Uh, we're not like our face is not in it because, frankly, our, having our face or our body in the shot, it doesn't add anything. It's just our voice and then whatever we're showing graphically or, or the text on the screen. And um, the nice thing is that the the slides, for lack of a better term, or the frames of the video, um, are also LaTeX based, and that's a nice efficiency because I typically will write like a detailed study manual, and and then I, I will create a more summarized and you know interesting version of that visually uh, in a LaTeX package called Beamer, um, B E A M E R. And Beamer is a really cool idea that somebody came up with that takes LaTeX and it creates a PDF that visually looks like something that you might get if you were to PDF your keynote presentation or something. You'll see, you know, slides. The cool thing about Beamer is not only does it support LaTeX in all the usual ways, it has these codes that allow you to render pieces of the PDF or pieces of the LaTeX code in very specific sequences. And this becomes very powerful, not just for, you know, something basic like making bullets appear one by one, but you can reveal pieces of graphics uh, in segments, which is nice because if you've got a graph with a lot of lines or something, uh, it's so much easier to explain that to somebody if you can really focus their attention on the very specific thing that you're talking about and then reveal it in a sequence. And so the way it does this is is kind of crude in a way, but it creates a, a PDF page for each frame, you know, that, that you're generating using the code. 
And so, you know, skipping, you know, kind of waving my hands over how that works. But, you know, so I'll get a PDF. And if you were to just arrow through the PDF, it's kind of like, you know, like this old fashioned cartoons where you're, you know, flipping through, you know, pages of, you know, and Mickey Mouse is kind of dancing around on the page. It's kind like of like a, that. A flip book. Is that what they were <laughs> yeah, called? It, yeah, like a flip. Yeah, something like that. But, and, um, and you know, Eddie, that's a that's a technique I used to use all the time in creating presentations before the animation tools got better. Like mm-hmm. if you have a graph and you want to display one bar at a time of the graph and they don't have a way to animate that, you just make multiple copies of it and put them in a row. The audience isn't going to know any difference. You're just advancing slides. So exactly. I don't yeah. think it's really that bad of an idea. And I'm completely with you with the idea when you're presenting information to people, if you just dump all the information on the screen and then start talking about it, their eyes are always going to be looking at some other part of that thing you just dumped um, rather than what you want to talk about. So control the message and, and do break it up like that. So that, so that makes sense. It's an interesting technique, though. So they're just following the old method of just make an extra page. Exactly. And what you said is so important, too. And you should know you wrote a book about presentations. But that's the other nice thing about Beamer is it controls. It, it's sort of formatted in a way to where you're you're sort of constrained with how much text you can put on the screen. And I think that's very important because and this is not limited to the actuarial world, but if, if you're in any kind of technical profession, uh, you've undoubtedly attended a conference where somebody had a PowerPoint deck and um, they've just paced like one point, you know, Times New Roman font in there. They've got a slide with 4,000 words on it. And and then they're, they'll spend like 30 minutes on that slide because there's so much to talk about. And, you know, I mean, there's so many things wrong with that approach. But if you could just like... If you're going to put a lot on a slide, at least reveal the elements of the slide in a sequence that focuses the person's eye and and attention on, you know, whatever it is you're talking about. And so this is one way to do that. But, you know, technically, you know, so I'll have this PDF. But the cool thing is, is there's this free app called PDF to Keynote that does exactly what it says. It converts a PDF into a Keynote document. And I think all it does is it just converts the PDF pages into images and then creates a slide and keynote for each image. And so then what I have, and, and so then I get to harness all the power of keynote. So now if I've got these graphics and I'm not, I don't just want like a line to appear, but maybe I want the line to appear to draw across the screen because maybe I'm simulating a stock price, you know, moving across the screen and maybe at different points in time, there's something I need to say about where it is in relationship to something into relation to something else. So I can bring these things to life. And, and the way you do that is just with very simple keynote tricks, you know, like putting in, you know, overlaying, you know, images and shapes and using, you know, the animations to wipe things. And so, you know, you get something where you're, you know, recording it in screen flow. And of course you can do a lot of this stuff in screen flow too on the back end. And so you ultimately end up with this very nice professional video, you know, that's uh, really attempting to boil very technical information down to something that can be more easily digested visually and through the audio. And then and then the other art to it is just, you know, like the videos I create. I mean, there's no telling what you'll see. I mean, pictures of crazy things will appear. YouTube videos will pop up and. Those are just techniques I use. I mean, they're practical techniques because I'm trying to keep people's attention because, I mean, they have to watch a lot of these videos because there's just so much material. And that's really the art in it. That's really the fun part is, 
you know, you've done all this reading, you've done all this outlining and writing, and there's all this technical stuff. But then I get to create something that's actually fun to watch. And hopefully, you know, and, and I'll get people email me. I mean, I'll get my customers email me just thanking me for making something that's enjoyable to watch because, you know, people were not, weren't doing that before. People were just droning on over the material. Yeah, so, I, I call it a hostage videos. I mean, the legal yeah. profession is full of them. Yeah. I mean, right. there's a guy sitting at a table talking and it's like, it could be done so much better and very mm-hmm. few people try. Now, yep. I want to back up a little bit though. So the PDF to keynote, you said it, it creates an image, but then you said you were able to animate lines on the image. Does it break the image into component pieces? It just, so you've got your PDF, you know, like that flip book concept. Yeah. All PDF to keynote does is put that into a keynote file. So you end up with this keynote file with like a bazillion slides, you know, because you've got like a frame for all these things. But the way you animate it is like, if you've got like, let's say you've got a sequence where a line appears in a line graph, but you want the line to be drawn across the screen. Well, it, let's say your background is white. Well, then you just, in Keynote, you just throw in a white box, which yeah, will be okay. completely invisible. It's, it's the negative yeah. space trick. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah. It's it's very crude tricks. You know, um, I feel uh, like, like I'm not a cinematographer at all, but I feel like I'm kind of at that point, like maybe where the film industry was in like 1920 or something, <laughs> you know, where I'm kind of like discovering these little hacks. Yeah. But, now let's talk about that but for it's a minute, a lot though. Of, it's a lot of fun, though. Okay. So this is something that, Everybody used to do when you're making keynotes or or even PowerPoints before they gave you the uh, the enhanced ability to animate objects. So like like right now in keynote, you can draw a line on the screen and you can make a wipe animation that makes the line draw across the screen as if somebody's taking a pencil and drawing it. And that's mm-hmm. so much easier than the way we used to do it. The way we used to do it is you would have a you'd put the line on the screen and then you would draw a box around it and you give the box the exact same color as the background. Mm-hmm. And it had to be the exact same color. Couldn't be anything different. And then you would make that a box appear, or you could make that box animate in some way that would make it appear as the line was being drawn. So it was kind of what I would call negative space. Mm-hmm. And a, a while ago, that was like the only way to do it. And um, But the programs have come so far that it's not as big of a deal. So it's interesting for me to hear about you still using those tricks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people complain about keynote, like the recent update, but to me, it is it has everything I need to create like really amazing stuff visually uh, through a video, especially when you pair it with ScreenFlow, because you can do you know similar things in ScreenFlow too. There's a lot of tricks you can do there, um, but the key is to just is to do it. You know, is to to make something with the goal of of it being visually interesting. Yeah, and, and, yeah. You know. and just to, to fill in the blanks there, I mean, the way you do that, it, it, I mean, that's the way I do it, too. So I guess you tell me, but I, I'll write a keynote presentation for a video I'm making. If there's a section I want to demonstrate something, all I do is make a keynote presentation. I animate it and then I fill the screen with it and run screen flow at the same time. Yep. And then you essentially perform the keynote. I mean, you're performing it. You're giving the presentation to, you know, your microphone as you sit there. And it plays across the screen, and for the the listener or the reader, I, what do you call the per, the, the viewer? They get yeah. that performance. Exactly, Keynote is is a wonderful screencasting tool, and it's funny because I'm sure. I mean, it was obviously created as a presentation tool for live presentations, and to me, it it is the best way to create a screencast of any kind and make it look very professional. 
I wish Apple would recognize that a little bit more in the development of Keynote. And the, the number one feature I wish they would introduce is some way, because I'm always doing this with two screens, I wish for screencasting purposes there was a way you could um, make one monitor available as your regular computer desktop. Um, I've never figured out a way to turn off the presentation mode, uh, which is something that, that makes complete sense You know, if you're giving a live presentation. But for screencasting, I really wish I could see my screen because I'm constantly going out of Keynote to look at a PDF file. Of course, <laughs> yeah, I use my iPad. I use yeah. my iPad a lot for that too, but um, but it just seems like such a simple thing, and and it even seems like something that would be simple to hack. But I've never figured out a way to do it. So if anybody knows, that is something you can email me about if you know that trick. <laughs> uh, one thing a lot of people ask me about, and they don't realize, is I, I shoot my screencast. I don't shoot them in native resolution. I have a Retina iMac. If I did, mm-hmm. those videos would be so oh, big that you would yeah. be able to use them. So so what do you do for your screen resolution when you're shooting these? Yeah, I I put them on an external. It's actually a very cheap external. And and I even after and it's on a lower resolution and I even knock it down a little bit more when I do my ScreenFlow export because we serve, I mean, we serve terabytes of video uh, in our bandwidth. I mean, bandwidth is a major concern for us because we have so many customers and we have so much video covering so many materials. And so we have to be really aware of how big these videos are. And that's one way to control the size. But yeah, it, it would not look good uh, if, somebody, if you filmed on a retina screen and somebody on a normal computer tried to watch that video, it would it would not look good. So are you great. Just, just they'd only see a quarter of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they'd see one corner. <laughs> are, do you just have set standards that you're encoding all of these in Handbrake or something? Or you're exporting them in... in a- yeah, so or? I've got yeah, I've got some stuff I use Handbrake for, but yeah, I've I've got kind of a workflow in ScreenFlow. I've got a set of custom export settings in ScreenFlow that work with the dimensions that I use. Um, one trick I use Handbrake for, and this is a, this is a really cool trick, is a lot of the times I don't know how long a video will be until it's over <laughs> because it just takes a long time, and so I may end up you know outputting. Uh, an mp4 that's an hour long well i don't want to put an hour long video for anybody to watch i'd rather chop them up into 15 to 20 minute segments at the most so what i'll do is i will in ScreenFlow, i'll add um, i think they're chapter markers they're just called marks i think in ScreenFlow. and there's an export setting in ScreenFlow that uh, tells it to add a chapter for each one of those okay so then what that allows you to do is you can open handbrake and um, point it at your MP4, and in Handbrake, it will recognize that the file, the video file, has chapters. And you can queue up. You can basically split the file at the chapters in Handbrake by just saying, "Okay, just output a PD or output an MP4 for chapter one to chapter one, then chapter two to chapter two is the way you do it." So if you had three chapters, you'd queue up three files. It's actually it goes very quickly, and then Handbrake runs so fast. And and it chops the video up into segments. So that's a great way to to cut up a video if you needed to do that for any reason. Cool. Awesome. Don't know if that made sense, but I use no, that. I actually, I actually do that a lot to try to keep the individual videos to a reasonable length. Yeah. What are some other screencasting tips that you've learned uh, making all of these screencasts? You know, the number one thing that I started to realize is when you're screencasting, it kind of takes some time to realize that 
it gives you so much more freedom to do things and to screw up. And it's not like speaking in front of a live audience. It's not even like this, which, you know, it's just pre-recorded, but it still feels live. Like if I say, yeah, it's live enough. If, if I say something and and in my mind, I'm thinking, ah, it wasn't quite the way I wanted it. I'll pause and then I'll say it again. Okay. And so in the raw version, it sounds like I have some kind of strange mental condition because you'll hear me repeating myself a lot. But when I'm editing, it's very easy to remove those things. And so you start to kind of think probably more like, you know, a cinematographer or somebody in film where you're taking multiple takes, you know, because when you go see a feature film, you're watching, you know, 90 minutes of a movie, whereas they probably shot, you know, God knows how many hours or days of video to get that 90 minutes. So you start thinking more in terms of uh, the fact that, and even like the components of your video, you know, don't record your introduction first. I mean, it sounds so obvious. It's just like with writing. Don't write your intro first. You know, I'll, I will always do that last once I know what I've actually said, because then when I give an, an intro to tell you what I'm going to tell you about, I'm actually, you know, you know what right I'm going to tell you about. Yes, exactly. So, so everything in my videos is time shifted all over the place. I've recorded it at different times and with ScreenFlow, it's very easy to stitch all that together so that you have it, you know, it's all nice and seamless in the end. So that's, that's like, and that's more of a nuance. It's just, you know, realize that take your time to get it right because you have the time. You're not on stage. Like if you misspeak, it's not a big deal. But with this, you have the time to really get it right and to redo things if you need to. Yeah. yeah and th- what I'd add to that is just make it one long cut. You don't need yes. to stop and re-record three different takes. Just let it run. Yes. Because it's easy. It take That takes longer than just saying it again two or three times and then continue. You know, I have a trick. Um, I've never shared this before, but when I do recordings, I just click my tongue when I have an edit point. I'll just go like that. Mm. And then I have like a code in my head. I have one, two, and three of those. And I... This is something I've never shared with anybody because it's just, it's just a <laughs> workflow I've developed over the years of doing all these screencasts. But then when I look at the WAV file, because ScreenFlow does such a good job, and I use the same app as you, Eddie, um, that it, you know, that that noise is distinctive enough. When you look at the WAV file of the audio, it's very easy to scrub to those those edit points. Yep, uh, and you know you can just do that as you're firing through, you know, the screencast. It, it makes it a lot faster. That's a great tip. In fact, I'm probably going to start doing that because I I have uh, there's a certain amount of error where I probably do miss some things that I should edit out because I'm doing so much editing. And that's a great tip. But it is funny, like you start like if you do enough editing, you'll start to understand you'll recognize your voice and speech patterns in waveforms like you'll know what an um looks like or an ah and and it's so funny because like you'll you'll just see these things and and that kind of sound i would imagine would be very distinct yeah um so that's that's a really good tip but yeah i totally agree like make one long cut like if the dog starts barking just let him bark if you have a phone call take the call i mean it's very obvious where the audio dies you know, and, and you can just do a ripple delete in seconds and it's gone. Um, and it just it is way more efficient. Now, on your list of video workflows, you also had uh, said that you do hazel automation in respect to your video. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about that. Actually, oh, that, actually, yeah. should I should we do another ad? It's been a little while. <laughs> sure, we can we can talk about our. Our next sponsor um, and our next sponsor uh, for this episode is our pals over at Linda. 
dot com. And, you know, Eddie, Eddie does a lot of video because he knows that video is one of the best ways that his students learn. Uh, and that's what our friends over at lynda.com do as well. And so if you're ready to invest in yourself this year, maybe you don't want to take an actuarial exam, but you want to start learning something new, uh, you can check out lynda.com and get a free 10 day trial. Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world. It has over 3000 courses and topics on things like web development, photography, visual design, business, uh, as well as training courses like Excel and WordPress and Photoshop. And all of these courses are taught, taught by experts and new courses are being added to the site every week. So whether you want to new, set new financial goals, whether you want to find a work-life balance, uh, whether you just want to invest in a new hobby, uh, you could potentially maybe get some new skills that could lead you to ask your boss for a raise, or even find a new job. Uh, Lynda.com is the place for you. In 2015, you can resolve to do something good for yourself and learn some new skills with Lynda.com. So if you head over to Lynda.com, that's L-Y-N-D-A.com slash Mac Power Users, you'll get unlimited access for 10 days to every single course on Lynda.com. That's access to view tutorials, on any tablet that includes your iPhone, your iPad, including Android devices, uh, and access all of the new courses that are added every week. Uh, and some of the courses and videos I recommend uh, include iOS 8, uh, iPhone and iPad training essentials. So if you want to brush up your iOS 8 skills, or maybe you know someone in your family who needs some help with iOS 8, uh, walk them through this lynda.com course. You can also learn how to set up a mobile office and work from anywhere, um, or take a course on how to speed up and maintain your Mac. Um, so go check them out at lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A.com slash Mac Power Users. Uh, and sign up for your free 10-day trial. And when you go ahead and decide to buy, uh, you'll like that they have one flat fee that you can pay and get access to their entire catalog. So thanks to lynda.com for their support of Mac Power users. Okay, so how does Hazel fit into video workflows? Because I'm curious about this one. Yeah, actually, I don't use Hazel for any of the video files, but um, I use it to automate the PDF to Keynote step. So what I'll typically do is, you know, I'll spend a lot of time, you know, making the slides essentially that will end up in Keynote, and those are all in PDF. And I just have a naming scheme to where once I'm ready, I will change the file name that's being output, you know, when I typeset the LaTeX to that Beamer package, I'll rename it uh, with a certain uh, keyword in the file name, and Hazel picks it up and runs it through PDF to Keynote and then launches the Keynote file. So just simply by renaming the file, Keynote is open, you know, with this presentation, you know, ready to go. So um, it's, and I also use it for some other stuff. I color code some of the files because LaTeX sometimes creates a lot of junk files in the working directory where it's making the PDF and, and I'll I'll use some, you know, just colors uh, to make it easier to find things. But but just that one PDF to Keynote automation thing was huge because it just saved me a lot of clicks. Well, I just think I think everybody that listens to this show could benefit from Hazel in yeah. some way if they would try. It's just yeah. not, it's just amazing. Anyway. Well, talking a little bit about, you know, organizing and PDFs, your job is to really cull through so much material that these students have to learn. And it's still a lot of material that you're now 
feeding them uh, to mm-hmm. say, this is the stuff that you absolutely have to have. But I can only imagine that if you're feeding them hours and hours and hours and reams and reams of material, although I guess technically they're not printing it out, so it wouldn't be reams of paper anymore. That's a bad example. But, you know, PDFs. Actually, actually a surprising number of people still print, which it, oh. it amazes me, but they do it. So anyway. Right. <laughs> well, gigabytes yeah. and gigabytes worth of material that you've lovingly crafted. Yep. The, you, you've got a call this all down from somewhere. I mean, you, you've got to go out and figure out this is all of the potential stuff that could be on the exam. This is, this is how I can present it in the most coherent fashion. This is all of the original source material. And this is what I can get it down to, you know, basically the, the study guide and, and the learning material. How, how do you do that? I mean, cause you, you've got to be talking about massive amounts of stuff that you've got to go through, that you've got to read, that you've got to figure out what's important, what's not, that you've got to be able to access and come back to. Uh, to me, that's probably one of the more fascinating things is just organizing, figuring out what's important and what's not and what you're going to cover. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's a lot. It's one of those things like the process of developing the products is kind of like, you know, the, the whole, you know, journey of a thousand miles begins with one step or whatever. I mean, it's like, you know, you're, you're just kind of taking it day by day as you kind of plod through, you know, all these materials. Um, but then you get to this point after you're doing it for a while where you look back and you've created, or I've created so much material, like you were saying. I mean, I've got, you know, th- these, these documents that are hundreds of pages long. I've got different versions of them. And then I've got the source material. And then what happens is, you know, I've got a video or something that's a year or two old. And then, you know, a, a big part of my job is supporting the products. I mean, we have internal message boards. People are always asking me questions. And then they'll ask me a question like, I'm really having trouble with the phrase, you know, they'll, they'll give me some word. Like the other day, somebody was asking me about uh, this this term called a ratchet. Like, what does ratchet mean, which is a, is a term for how... Um, guaranteed benefits work with certain types of annuity and insurance products. And you'll have words like that that have different meanings in different contexts. And it's it's impossible for the human mind to remember all those nuanced meanings over, you know, these stacks and stacks of PDFs. I don't know how people did this before computers, but um, for the longest time, I would keep it all in Evernote and I would use Evernote as like my bulk content management system for all these PDFs that, I mean, it's textbook scans, industry articles, technical papers, all this stuff. I mean, some of it was, was created as text-based PDFs. Some of it was imaged. And I would use Evernote. And Evernote was pretty good, you know, with its OCR of finding things. But very recently, you know, Gabe Weatherhead, Mac Drifter, turned me on to DevonThink and once I got everything like OCR using Devin thinks OCR engine, I found its search engine is is so much better than Evernote for what I do, which again is is really getting at a very extreme end of the spectrum when it comes to PDF management and search. But I'm able to build these searches where I can look for keywords, not not just phrases, and instantly see every document that that keyword appeared in, so I can very quickly read it in these different contexts and give somebody a good answer. But you can even search for words like in proximity to other words, uh, which becomes very powerful You know, when you're searching over thousands of pages of PDF. And and it happens instantly. I mean, DevonThink is, is unbelievable uh, with its indexing system. And it, it, it effectively reduces 
you know, all these different PDFs created by different authors in different formats, it create it kind of reduces it to like units of information where, you know, you do a search and then you see all the PDFs that are relevant to that. And then in a single pane, you can read about that word and all those different PDFs very quickly. And, and I've just been amazed at how much time it saved me uh, for being able to like go back just to kind of re-reference uh, some of these documents. Yeah. And I do want to mention, I know we have teased the Devon Think Show many, many times uh, for probably over a year now, but um, in part, thanks to, to Eddie's pushing, uh, <laughs> Gabe, uh, a.k.a. Mac Drifter, uh, has agreed to come on the show and, and talk about it. And so we're targeting that. I, I want to say look, we're shooting for next month, but it may be the month after. But I can now say that show is in active development as opposed to just being on the list. I can't wait to listen to that because I'm still like I'm still kind of new to Devin. Think I've I've used it enough to where I'm completely sold. But um, but Gabe is is an expert. He's been using it for years, so that'll be a great show. Yeah, it's going to be, and it's actually going to happen. So there we go. <laughs> it's even better. <laughs> all right. So so Devin think so all the PDFs now live in Devin think everything lives in Devin think or um. It, Everything that has some sort of reference quality to it is in DevonThink. Like right now, the way I'm using DevonThink is is a way to get back to like the source material that a lot of my documents came from. Um, although I'm doing some experiments now where I'm starting to add in PDFs that I've created um, so that I can see, like if I do a keyword search, I can see not only the source material it came from, but the PDF that I've created, you know, what I've said about that to make sure everything is consistent. So, um, so it'll be interesting to see where it ends up. But for now, if, if all I ever use it for is a way to just keep up with the source material, then it's well worth the price. So (laughs) it's been great. So Eddie, you, in addition to all this, you have been working at home for a while. Yes. I mean, that's your, because of this working in a small company, you're allowed to work remotely. That's right. Um, and, and that's been going on for about a year now. And suddenly I have more of an interest in this than I ever did before. <laughs> How's that all working out for you? You know, it suits me really well because I'm just, for a few reasons. I mean, one, I just enjoy having control of my time. And even though I'm, you know, technically an employee, I you know, the nature of my work is more like somebody who's completely independent. Um, you know, the, the people that I work for, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm basically just running a segment of the company and I have complete control of, you know, how I do that and everything. And, and it's wonderful for me. It's, I can see how it would not be great for people who really need somebody else to give them structure. And that's not saying that in a derogatory way, because I think that, it can be extremely challenging to sort of, you almost have to be in like a dual mindset. I mean, you have to be a worker, but you also have to be a boss of yourself. And it took me, even though I've always been kind of independent and just had a strong work ethic, it took me a little while to kind of figure out how to do that. Um, and, and it really does take like a conscience, conscious effort to like planning your day and not just your day, but your week and your month and having goals and and using your calendar, I mean, I, I think the calendar is like the single most important productivity tool there is to to kind of be aware of how limited time is and how you're how you at least plan to spend your day. I think that's very important to have a plan for each day. Um, 
but but I love being remote. In fact, all of us um, at TIA are remote, uh, and and it all works great for us. So for the right personality, for the right kind of person, it's it's a dream come true. Really, I mean, I love it. I'm finding I'm only a few weeks into this experiment, but I'm finding that I don't know when to stop. As I just keep working, and that's yeah. something I have to figure out still. Yeah. Uh, what, what you said you mentioned calendaring, and so what kind of tools are you using to manage your time? Yeah, you know, um, I, I do some different things, but it's actually, I mean, I, I really just use the calendar built in. I mean, I use iCloud calendars, and honestly, I think the most valuable calendar is is just the Mac calendar, the week view, like being able, like on Sunday night or Monday morning, being able to look across the week and time block things. And, and I kind of try to you know, time block in a way that is consistent with my goals. So if I've got projects that I'm working on uh, and those are the ones that are going to pay the bills, then I try to consciously time block more time for those projects and consciously squeeze, you know, my time blocks for, for things that I want to be careful not to spend too much time in like email uh, because email when, when you're fairly independent, but you're creating a product that you have to support um, email can absolutely destroy you uh, if you allow it to, you know, dictate your time. So you really have to parameterize your work in terms of time, at least for me, uh, and say that I'm only going to spend, you know, an hour on email today, you know, uh, for customer support. And that forces me to get through it more efficiently uh, and, and make, you know, smarter decisions as opposed to just letting letting it dictate to me when I do it, because if you do that, then you won't get anything done. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how email, it's like the, it's like the beast that cannot be sated. You know, you, yeah. the more you feed it, the bigger it gets, the more of your time it wants, the less other stuff you're able to do. It's, yes. Uh, yeah. That's so, a, a running theme here on Mac power users. Yeah. It's, I mean, email, it's kind of a tired subject because, you know, we've all been talking about email for years. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I don't think most people, really understand for themselves personally how much time they spend in it and and they don't understand how much time that takes away from things that they're actually being graded on. I mean, whether you're meeting with your boss at the end of the year, talk about what you did, whether you're selling a product to a customer, um, you know, email is a major obstacle, I think, to actually, you know, freeing up time to actually do things because it's a necessary thing. But at the same time, it, it is it's kind of a cancer uh, almost on knowledge work because it it just robs you of so much time and attention. Do you set aside certain days or uh, certain large portions of days to say, well, you know, Monday's going to be more of an admin day and Tuesday's going to be more of a customer support day. And, you know, Wednesday and Thursday is when I really hit my stride. And that's that's really what I'm going to devote to creating videos. And Friday's kind of a down day. So that's going to be a reading day. I mean, do you do you do things like that or do you do you block your time out differently? Is there any strategy you found that that works well for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um the number one thing I do is I guard my mornings as much as I can because I know that I'm I'm very much a morning person and that, you know, if there's work that I need to do and typically the work <clears throat> that, that I'm selling, you know, the product takes a lot of concentration. I mean, creating these materials takes a lot of focus and I get so much more done per hour in the morning than I do in the afternoon. I mean, I literally 
lose focus with each hour of the day as it passes. I mean, I'm at my best at probably 6 a.m. By 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, like, my mind is pretty much done. Like, if I try to do things that take a lot of concentration, I might be able to kind of get them done, but that time is so much better spent doing email, okay? So so I'll guard my mornings for real productivity work, and then as later, you know, as I get later in the day, I'll block time for email and things like that or checking the message boards to respond to people's questions or just general admin stuff because I haven't even talked about it, but I actually manage a whole other team of, of contractors that do other uh, seminars for us. And so I'll check in with them and check in on their progress. And, you know, a lot of times they need me to help them with stuff. And so I'll do that. You know, it's just I think it takes being aware of like how your mind works and how like those admin tasks, you can get those done, but get them done in a time of day when, you know, your brain is pretty much shot uh, because those things don't take a lot of brain power anyway. Um, and, and so I think that's the key is to utilize the time of the day that's the most valuable uh, for the given task. And, you know, that's not necessarily morning for everyone. I think that's a, a pitfall to fall into that people are like, well, I, I need to do it in the morning because everybody has to be a morning person. And I'm a morning person, too. But there are some people for whom that's 7 p.m. Yeah, mm-hmm. it just I think you just got to find your groove with this stuff and and actively using your calendar to block time is a great idea. It's a great way to do it. But you got to live up to it. You can't just put those entries in there and never do them. Yeah. Um, all right. So we, we've been talking about vegetables. It's time for dessert. Um, <laughs> we all want to talk about the Apple event and the new MacBook. Katie's struggle, her yep. inner struggle. She has uh, the new uh, the new watch and stuff. Uh, let's do our last sponsor. And I'm not going to say we're going to hold it to 10 minutes because we put it at the end. If you're not interested in this stuff, you can go after the next sponsor break. Of yes, course. After. We got our sponsors are wonderful people and uh, we want their support. Uh, anyway, our last sponsor is LaunchBar. And LaunchBar is the do everything application for your Mac. You hit a couple keys on a keyboard, it opens up the LaunchBar window and it just does everything for me. It launches applications, it can get a name and address of somebody. It can move files on my desktop for me. It can go to the Safari and open up a tab for me. It's just the place I go to get anything done on my Mac. So let me talk about it a little bit more if you've never heard of this before. Now, we all know about Spotlight, and you have Spotlight on your Mac already. It's built in. Well, LaunchBar is like Spotlight, but just way better. And with version 6 now, they have this entirely new user interface. It's got themes in it, so you can even change the look of it, which is really great. But they've also improved the configuration interface. Uh, now you can add uh, indexing rules. For instance, if you want to get into a specific reminder list, it's just a couple keyboard or strokes away using LaunchBar. If you want to go to a Finder tag or if you want to go to a Safari top site, you can do that in LaunchBar. Uh, everybody has different um, key cor- keyboard combinations to activate. I think the default is a con- a command space. For me, I use control space. I know every time I talk about this, I get in trouble, Katie. Uh, but so you just hit that little uh, control space and then the launch bar window opens. Then you can go jump to anything on your Mac. For instance, I could type in Katie Floyd and it would give me her phone number and her address. Not only would it show it to me, I could make it display on a screen in large type if I need to go across the room to dial the phone and I need to see it large. Or I could hit um, uh, command C and copy it to my clipboard and then paste it into a letter that I'm writing to her. All this stuff is really easy with launch bar. It goes deeper, though, because you can also take files and do things with them. You can tag them. You can airdrop them to another device. Um, You can get the information or you can even move or copy them to different locations. Like one of my, you know, 
typical launch bar actions is sweeping files off my desktop. I've got this great action folder um, that I have on Dropbox where I kind of keep things as a clearinghouse as I sort through files. Well, if I've got a bunch of stuff on my desktop and I'm about to screencast like Eddie or I'm just tired of looking about them, I can just select them, then hold down launch bar and then type um, Dropbox or I just type DR and it goes to Dropbox and then or I can just type action AC because it knows that folder. I use it so often and then it give me a prompt to move it there. I hit return and it moves the files right there to me. This is all kind of hard to describe in an audible podcast, but if you were sitting over my shoulder, you would think it's absolute magic. Uh, we've talked about it on the show before we even did an entire show on it way back when we got started. Um, but LaunchBar can really change your productivity on your Mac. Uh, with the new version 6, they also have a powerful custom script-based actions where you can extend LaunchBar with custom actions in most of the common scripting languages. And if you don't know how to write a scripting language, that's okay. You can download uh, custom script-based actions that people already created for you so go check it out um uh you can learn more about it uh um i don't see what, what is the uh url katie i don't have a, is it objective development is the developer yeah but you can just go to launchbar.com okay go to launchbar.com and check it out they've got a single family life or a f- entire family license they also have upgrade pricing if you were in before so go check it out and um and thank you launchbar for supporting the show all right. So uh, this show is publishing on Sunday and past Monday, we had a nice event from Apple that not only gave us more information about the Apple Watch, they also presented a brand new MacBook. Yep. Now, combined with that, the fact that Katie Floyd has been talking, I don't know, about a year now about how her uh, MacBook Air is getting long in the tooth, but she just wanted to see what Apple was going to do. Well, Katie Floyd, now we know what Apple was going to do. Mm-hmm. They're going to come up with this brand new MacBook that's, uh, it, it's called MacBook, even though it's lighter than the MacBook Air. Yeah. Which is kind of funny. I guess eventually the MacBook Air The MacBook monitor, Air is going to go away. And and yeah. Apple needs to consolidate their, their lineups. You remember, we used to have this four quadrant grid. Do you want a laptop? Do you want a desktop? Do you want a pro? Do you want a consumer? Pick one. And you had yeah. one of these products. And Apple has really gotten away with that. And, and I think, I hope... I say that. I hope they're trying to get away back. They're trying to find their way back to it. But then, you know, we'll talk about the Apple Watch later. But they did the whole, which one of these 47 versions of the Apple Watch would you want? And I'm making up that number, but regardless. Well, let's start with the MacBook. Let's I'm not talk about the sum- MacBook. Yes. We'll just summarize it briefly, because by now I suspect most of our listeners have already heard enough about it. But it's a, it's it's ultra light. It's lighter than a MacBook Air. It's a 12-inch retina screen, which is understandably beautiful. And in order to get it thinner, they had to rethink a bunch of things. They re and that includes a new trackpad technology where it doesn't actually click, but instead has a a, a vibration a taptic, taptic engine, yes. taptic force, uh, engine in it. force touch. Yeah, force touch, which is kind of cool. As a Star Wars <laughs> fan, I can appreciate that. And then uh, they're very excited about uh, new switches in the keyboard that apparently make it even thinner. Uh, give your keyboard less travel, but it's supposed to be really great and makes the key the actual keys themselves larger. Um, and uh, so we aren't going to be able to actually get our hands on one until April 10th to try it ourselves. But Katie, is is this the new MacBook you've been waiting for? I don't know, because, you know, we got that Mark Gurman piece a couple of months ago, and it was basically this. This is what he told us was coming. And I had hoped that he was wrong. What There are two big things that concern me about this MacBook, and they're the same things that concern everybody else. One is the Intel um, 
um, mobile, is it the mobile C processor or the, anyway, the, the, the mobile, the processor that's, that's in this particular MacBook. I don't have the spec page up on me. Based on what I have heard, uh, and we have not seen any benchmarks yet, is that this this processor is going to be a little bit slower than anything that we currently see on the Apple lineup. That this is a processor that's probably going to be fine for you know word processing and browsing and things like this, but this is not a power processor, and this machine is actually going to be likely maybe even a decrease from the machine that I have now. So that's a bit of a concern, but really a decrease from a three-year-old machine. Uh, we'll we'll see what the we'll see what comes out, but um, you know, we'll I, that's one thing I'm waiting to see is I'm waiting to see the benchmarks for it. And the the other issue is this this USB the single USB C connector, and I'm I'm not sure what bothers me more: the fact that it's a a completely new connector and that nothing I have works with it. Or the fact that it's a single connector so that I've really got to pick one device at a time. And, you know, Apple has done this, and I'm, I'm contemplating writing my, my next article for Screencast Online about this, but, you know, Apple has done this to us before. As Mac users, we are no stranger to going through transitions with Apple. We went through the OS 9 to OS 10 transition. We went to um, the uh, PowerPC to the uh, Intel transition. You know, we, we've gone from uh, iOS you know, 6 to iOS 7. We have gone through so many transitions with Apple. And that's one of the things that makes Apple's great is they're, they're willing to burn the bridges and they're willing to get rid of uh, the old and, and move on. But it seems like, you know, they, they put all of their cards in the Thunderbolt basket not that long ago. And now they're saying, oh, nope, here we go. Here's, here's the USB-C. And it seems like this is, okay, on that point, I'm not, I'm not sure that's what they're saying. I, I do know that this Intel board uh, this Intel chip does not support Thunderbolt. And this is the only Intel chip that really would work to make something that could have a battery life with the nine hours that they want. Right. So I know that the current board on this device does not support Thunderbolt. Does that mean that they've given up on it? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think it's a bad sign for Thunderbolt, though. It's not yeah, encouraging. I, it's not a good sign. That's yeah. Well, and, and to be truthful, I, at this point, I don't have any Thunderbolt devices. So... That that in of its of itself is not a big deal to me. What is what is a big deal to me um, is is the fact that I don't have any USB C devices, and I know that nobody else does. But I'm going to have to buy a lot of adapters. And Apple fans know this. We have to do this every couple of years, as we have to throw out all of our stuff and buy completely new adapters. And so, just looking at it from a, a pure pricing standpoint, you know, in order for me to make this MacBook work in my current setup. I don't even know that there is a way right now for me to make my display, which I have to have an external display, work with this computer. I have a 24-inch cinema display, which thankfully is DisplayPort and not Thunderbolt. So I think there is hope that someone can make an adapter that will make this work, some kind of docking station that has mini DisplayPort on it. I was going to say, I mean, you would need some kind of hub. Right. You know, and it would have and it wouldn't be like a cheap hub. Right. Because it would have to be able to power it and and drive all this stuff. I mean, it would have to have a lot of bandwidth, uh, you know, I mean, just depending on what you're doing. I mean, like, I have a MacBook Pro, and I'm looking at it right now. I have Thunderbolt coming in. I have a wired Ethernet that I use Thunderbolt for. I have HDMI out to an external display. I've got a regular USB coming in for a microphone. I've got another USB coming in for an external keyboard. Yeah, I mean, it would it would take a serious hub 
you know, to do that. And that's not to say that, you know, the peripherals can't evolve uh, to, to fit and the hubs can't evolve. I think what's concerning for me is the switch up, uh, the the possible departure from Thunderbolt uh, to a new standard. And I, I think what happens is you, the people who are making these hubs and these third parties start to kind of, uh, question, you know, where the the direction they're going, and and you know, I, it's just, I don't know. I mean, is USB C going to be trumped by something else in two years? I mean, it's it's hard to say where wired connections are going now. So there's well, there's definitely going to be a hub involved. The question is, is that hub going to be made for DisplayPort? I don't think Apple's going to make it. Is a third party going to make it? How much is it going to cost? Are we talking weeks? Are we talking months? Are we talking a year? Because just in terms of pure cost, for me to for me to use this machine right now, I'm going to have to buy not one but two of their adapters. So you're adding 180 bucks there. Probably throw in the USB adapter because I think I've got to have USB adapter at least in my bag. And and right now, until I get some kind of mini display port adapter, I'm I'm looking at buying another monitor to make this work on my desktop, some kind of HDMI monitor. And um and and so that's that's shelling out in addition to the computer itself, you know, you're talking about shelling out somewhere between the monitor and the various adapters, you know, probably another five hundred dollars or so. In, in stuff that I really don't want just to make it work because I've got all of this stuff already. And I really didn't want to buy, and I realized that I'm going to have to buy another display at some point, but I really didn't want to buy another display until Apple was able to offer me a retina display solution for my computer. And I still think we're a couple of years off from that. And so my big dilemma, and I apologize, I know I'm monopolizing this conversation, you know, my big dilemma is, is what do I do? You know, I, I wrote this big post on, on, on my site with my thoughts kind of the evening of the event. And I, I woke up, you know, I basically have three options at this point. You know, option one is, is do nothing. You know, there's no rule that says that I have to upgrade my computer every three years. The computer that I have right now, for now, is meeting my needs and, and probably will for another year. So option one is do nothing. Um, that's certainly not the fun option. Of course, I'd love to buy a new machine, but that's an option. You know, option two, and it's it's probably the easiest option, uh, is to go buy a 13-inch MacBook Pro. Um, it, you know, it just got a nice upgrade. And honestly, it's the cheaper option because by the time you add in all the extra stuff that I'd have to buy to make the MacBook work, you know, the MacBook Pro is going to be a, a faster computer and it's going to work with all my stuff. It's just there's nothing else I have to buy besides Apple Care to make the 13-inch Retina MacBook Pro work into my system. And maybe that's the stopgap. Maybe that's what gets me through you know, the next two to three years to let this all kind of work itself out and sort itself out. And I know I'd be getting a good machine. I know I'd be getting a much more powerful machine, but it's a stopgap machine. I really don't want a 13-inch MacBook Pro. I really wanted a smaller, thinner, lighter computer. That's what I said that I wanted, even smaller than my 13-inch um, MacBook Air. And so I'm kind of going backwards in that respect. Um, and option three is to just suck it up and make it work, you know, make the MacBook work. And so I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. For now, I'm going to wait. I don't think you're going to be happy with that mobile processor in two or three years. That's my my feeling. And it seems to me like this new MacBook is kind of in the territory as the original MacBook Air where, you know, they're they're pushing the envelope, which is great. But it's also, you know, you're a bit of a, you know, 
a trailblazer yourself when you get one. And it seems to me like a really kind of a great computer for somebody as a second machine, like someone who's got a good desktop and wants a mobile machine when they're on the road that they're not going to be editing video on, but something just to do, you know, basic work on, uh, which isn't you. Unless you, you know, option four would be get yourself a really nice media machine for the house yeah. and get one of these to take to work with you. That's not happening. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying that sure. that is there's people out there that would do that. And, you know, and um, or somebody, if it's their soul machine, somebody who doesn't push the limits as hard as Katie Floyd does. So I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I'm curious to see what you ultimately decide. But yeah, um, I think it's a great machine. I think the fact that it, it may not be for you doesn't mean it's not a, a really interesting machine. But um, it is. Uh, I, I'm glad they're pushing it. Uh, you know, they've been rumored. This this machine has been rumored for a while, and several of the Mark German rumors had turned out to be not true. Like I, to me, it was a deal killer when I saw the Mark German rumor, and they said, and the keyboard's slightly smaller. I'm like, oh, done. There's no way I could ever use one because my fingers are used to a certain keyboard. If I get on a computer and the keys are cramped, even just the little uh, case covers for the iPad with the cramped keyboards slow me down so much. Um, there's no way I would buy a MacBook with a reduced keyboard size, but they fixed that. I mean, and it looks like they spent a lot of time figuring that out. Yeah. And the the unknown, which, you know, if we had a crystal ball, it would make my decision so much easier. I I know it sounds like I'm poo-pooing the MacBook. I'm really, really excited about this machine, which is what makes my decision so much more difficult. And I and I hope this doesn't come across as, as being so negative. I am so excited about this machine and the possibilities that it brings. I just think it's not quite right for me. It's a little too compromised for me. And maybe that's the problem is I want it to work so badly, but there's another part of my brain that just says, no, caution, caution, this isn't quite quite right. And that's what's giving me hesitation. But I'm really excited about this machine because the technology that we're seeing in this machine um, with the force touch trackpad, the battery technology that we're seeing in this machine, um, the even the USB-C technology, because by all uh, stances, that's, that's a much better technology than what we've seen before. The keyboard technology, the screen technology, Everything we've seen that they're putting into this machine is going to make its way um, even into the MacBook Pro line. So the real question is, when do we start seeing those come into the other lines? You know, am I if I buy a 13-inch MacBook, is this the head fake 13-inch MacBook Pro? You know, do if I wait one more year, is the 13-inch MacBook Pro going to get a lot of these features? You know, if I wait one more year, uh, is the is the is the MacBook? Um, going to all of a sudden get a bit because you remember there's a huge difference between the original macbook air and the second gen macbook air you know if i wait one more year is the macbook um going to be a, a little less compromised of a machine and so the question is you know is is this the head fake year is this the year to get the macbook pro or do i want to wait it out one more year because i can wait it out one more year but I'm, I'm not sure i can wait it out too and the other interesting thing is this these are apple products which you can actually sell I mean, That's it's true. not like you, you buy it and you're done with it. I, I'm I'm going through the same thing a little bit, but for me, I'm actually kind of interested in the MacBook because my life has changed. I used to have an office I would drive to every day, and I had this 15-inch MacBook Pro that was very useful because I used it all day long. Whereas now, I'm spending almost all my time at the um, at the iMac. But when I go out to client meetings or court, uh, the 15 inch is kind of big to carry around. Maybe I'll get one. I don't know yet. I'm I'm definitely not going to do anything till I get, see the reviews and hear more about it because it's such a new thing. I think it's something you want to kind of let 
let the thing um I get think, out there. I think it's a great second machine, David, especially with that, yeah. that Retina MacBook, uh, Retina iMac it's you got. A, and that's the thing, because like if you've already got a Retina iMac, you know, you, you could go, you could have a smaller second computer without ever losing that Retina view, because that's what's so jarring. Like once you get used to, yeah. I mean, I don't have a Retina iMac, but I have a 15 inch MacBook Pro, which is a pretty decent size Retina screen. And of course, I have an iPad, an iPhone, and then like if I have to look at you know a MacBook Air, I mean it really is jarring. Uh, and and you know some people don't seem to think Retina is a big deal, but I mean to me it is. And, me too. and, and I think that um, so so I think that's one market for it. And then I think I think there's actually a huge market uh, of people who want a keyboard. Okay, and they they're not into peripherals like we are. They're never going to connect it to an external display. They're never going to connect it to wired Ethernet. Uh, they're they're jumping from boardroom to boardroom, or they're on planes, or they're sitting in their living room, and they have the disposable income, you know, to drop thirteen hundred, sixteen hundred, whatever, on a computer. Um, I think this is a great computer for them. I mean, the battery life really intrigues me, and maybe I got caught up in the reality distortion field, but. Uh, the, those tricks they're doing with the battery now, the way they cut them into sheets to absolutely fill like every cavity they can inside of that, you know, angled, uh, you know, body, I think is is fascinating. And I think it's encouraging, too, because it's showing you that even if battery technology itself can't keep pace, uh, they're doing some very innovative things to make more space for batteries. And I think you'll see that kind of stuff hopefully appear and other devices, as well as shrink. I don't know the technical term for it, but that board that they shrank, which in turn the freed up die um, shrink or whatever. Yeah, that that freed up even more battery space, which I think is a big deal too. The battery life. So, um, and, and then the fact that that they pulled the fan out of it is is kind of cool to me because now it's like an i it's like a big iPad with a keyboard. You know, there's no yeah, fan no. or anything, so it's. And, it really is in that weird space. Like it, it's, yeah. it's approaching iPad territory. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's I, thinner than the first iPad, David, at its thickest yeah. point. It's crazy. I think, and also I think what this might be is the fact that Apple has so much talent and so many resources and they're constantly working on things. And this may just be kind of a new Apple to where they're just allowing some of these things to come out to the market, whereas in the past it would have just stayed in a lab somewhere. You know, I mean, they could create any kind of MacBook they want, and they may just be doing some experimentation right now. But hopefully, it will converge because it is it is kind of moving toward. You know, it's getting a little confusing to have a MacBook Air, a MacBook, and then a MacBook Pro. Uh, whereas I, I, you, I don't you, know, it's not that bad. I mean, I guess I'd look at the MacBook Air at this point as the economy Mac. It's the one you can get into for under a thousand dollars. And the um and the other one, you're gonna pay for that miniaturization and the retina screen and some of those things. And then there's the MacBook Pro, you know, for the big boy and the big girl work. And yeah. That that that's what I worry about with Katie. I, I feel like this thing is underpowered enough that if it was my only computer, it was just not I couldn't do it. I mean, but you know, Katie and I were talking about this before the show started, and I was saying, well, how do would I do my screencasting videos? How would I do my iBooks? Because those things are massive files, and the machine is always heating up as it is. And she's like, I don't do that stuff. You know, I do a podcast with you. I'm like, well, that's a good point. But knowing Katie, I just feel like yeah, there that are, thing is just not There are enough, enough times that I do some stuff. You know, like I'm doing this ABA Tech Show presentation, and I've got to do 20 mini screencasts. So. 
Yeah. So, oh, and by the way, you do want screencast for that yes, show. I know. And I've, I've told all my co-presenters they have to. There. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, yeah. So it, that's going to be fun. I can't wait to see what Katie decides on it. I, to me, a big gating issue is the keyboard. I mean, I need to type on one of those things before I could consider it because, you know, if you, the point of a computer really is the keyboard. So um, I, I think it's great that they are trying to innovate, but I would like to spend some time with it before I would, you know, commit to one. But, you know, Katie, you're gonna, if you do go, you're going to get a gold one, right? David Sparks, if you get a gold MacBook, I will quit this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> because you just have t- explained to me that you have no taste. Get the gold one with bling on it. Maybe, you know, what, what do they call that? Um, that's, the, they the... <laughs> that's, that's the new Mac Sparky, though. <laughs> that's why he's, they call you Mac Sparky. To, I guess that's my grill. Yeah, he's re, he's reinventing him. I mean, he's changed he's changed up his career. I, I mean, admit, he's re, reinventing. I don't know himself. the 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 black one though looks pretty cool. I gotta say. Um, yeah. All right, um, so let's let's talk about. Okay, so that's beyond our ten minutes, but let's talk a little bit about the Apple Watch. We're doing at the end. We have a get out of jail free card. Oh, okay. Um, All right. Well, okay. people have long stopped listening, but yeah, exactly. It um, may just be the three of us at this point, so it's okay. So, David, um, you're you're reneging because I saw a tweet from you. you. You and I had this deal. We were both getting the low end entry level Apple watches, and then all of a sudden, I see a tweet from you where you're talking yourself into a higher entry level. Yeah, no, one. I know totally, aren't I? I, I I'm still probably going to get the aluminum one because. Now my wife has decided that she wants one too. The, the Mickey Mouse tapping foot tapping just cost me three hundred and fifty dollars, and um, and my daughter has shown up with her checkbook. She's like, Dad, you know, I I want to buy one for myself. <laughs> and I'm like, Okay, well, she's got a job. It's her money, I guess. So the Sparks family's in for three of these things now. So um, uh, I'm thinking I'll probably just get the aluminum one. But I was looking at the pricing. I expected the stainless steel to cost more. I think John Gruber has his own reality distortion field. I read what he says, and then all of a sudden I just believe that's you know. But you know, he thought that that the stainless steel was going to start at around a thousand. I'm like, there's no way I'm spending that much money on something that I'm going to replace in a year or two. But a couple things combined. Number one is the men's watch that or the larger size um, aluminum one is not three fifty; it's four hundred. And I definitely want a leather strap to wear with it because I'm going to be wearing it in courtrooms and meet client meetings. I'm not going to have that um, athletic strap on it all the time. Wow. Did you hear what I just said? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, mm-hmm. um, the uh, uh, so I was thinking, well, I'm going to have to buy the leather strap. The leather strap uh, is, you know, got that Apple pricing is $150. So I'm like, OK, so to get the aluminum one with the leather strap with the larger size, I'm going to end up spending $550 on my Apple watch. And then I'm like, well, how much is the stainless steel one with the sapphire crystal and the leather strap? Well, that's was $699, I believe. It's another $150. Bucks. Right. So it's like, I don't know. It's not that far off. So I don't know what I'm going to do, but um, I'm probably going to just get the aluminum one. Well, I'm I mean, going to... $150 is still $150. I'm, I'm going to have to see what they look like because when I... Correct me if I'm wrong, but when I looked at the pricing, the 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 other strap that has me interested is the Melanie's Loop. And yeah, I... It's 150 It's 150 I But I honestly, David, I really thought it was going to be a lot more than 150 Yeah, me too. Um, And so the, the low-end Apple Watch Sport, because I'm getting the smaller one, you know, is is 350 but to get the um, the Apple Watch with the Melanie's Loop is um, six fifty. Yeah, you know, so you're talking three hundred dollars more. 
where it's only an extra $150 just to buy the the band separate. Now, is the stainless steel um, band going to look okay with the aluminum case? I don't know. That's something I'm going to have to look at and see in person. But MixMyWatch.com seems to look like it looks okay. And I actually, I think I prefer the look of the aluminum case better than the shiny stainless steel case. I just keep thinking about the original iPod with the stainless steel back. I think it was stainless steel and it would get all scratched up, you know, the, the kind of the mirror stainless steel. Right. And I didn't um, care for that look of the, you know. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do now. Eddie, you were saying before the show started that you have made a decision. Yes. And it's it's very boring. I'm, I'm, I thought about stainless steel, but I'm going to get the um, the entry level one and just get one of the sport bands because you can always buy another band later. Uh, yeah. So I'm just going to do that. And, you know, I actually it's funny. I really want one of these things. I'm not sure why. Uh, I mean, I have I have some ideas about how, you know, it's going to be useful, but I'm really just kind of interested in it as sort of like a landmark piece of technology, because I think it's going to be a stepping stone to some other things. But but I also know that Apple's going to make another one and I'm going to want that one. And so I kind of feel like. This, you know, the wonderful thing about the Apple Watch is that the functionality, like the technical functionality, is the same. You know, at all these like key price points, it's all about. Yeah, you style. get the three hundred and fifty dollar one or the seventeen thousand dollar one, and it's going to have the same notifications. Exactly the same. Yeah. Like I don't even know how much storage it has, but it'll have the yeah. same, all the same tech specs. Which, being the the nerd that I am, that's really you know the the main thing for me. It's not about fashion. I mean, I want it to look nice. But I know that it's probably going to get thinner. It'll probably become more capable. And I'm going to want, you know, the next one. And, you know, to me, it just seems more logical uh, to buy the entry-level one. And I'm perfectly happy with the way the aluminum looks and and even the sport bands. I'm also kind of curious to see what kind of third-party market develops uh, for bands to see if there might be some, some other good options that appear. And I have to... You know, I think if if there if it has any success at all, there will be a lot of choices, and so I'm okay just kind of getting the stock band, so to speak, uh, for now, and then just swapping the band out later if I need to. Yeah, that's why I'm leaning too, because I, I have to buy two of them. So yeah, it sounds like you, yeah. oh no, th- I was going to say three, but you said your well, daughter's, daughter's paying. paying for her. Yeah, own, but the, uh, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and that's what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy the entry level, um, you know, the 38 millimeter silver aluminum case with white sport band, you know, 349. That's what I'm getting. And then if I want to add another band on it later, I might, you know, but that's the thing is, I don't know about you guys. I'm buying this site unseen. You know, obviously I've, you know, spent hours on the Apple website reviewing these, but I'm going to be setting my alarm and putting my order in at midnight the day that these go on sale, because I want mine as soon as humanly possible. I don't have an Apple store. You know, my closest Apple store is, is 60 miles away. I, I'm not going to go see one before I buy one because I want mine now. And, and maybe that's foolish. What about you? Are you guys going to go place your order online? Or are you going to go take a look at a store and then make your final decision? I'm I'm going to do it online because I've decided like I was kind of on the fence between the, the 38 versus the 42. And I, I finally decided I'm going to do 42 because they're not that big of a difference in size. I think both of them will fine on my wrist. And I think I read somewhere that the 42 may have a slightly better battery advantage, but I don't know if that's true. I don't well, know it's a little different resolution. Yeah. So 
so yeah, I'm just going to go with that. I mean, you could send it back, I guess, if if it was just a disaster. But yeah, I'm going to just order one. I mean, I have an Apple store where I live, but uh, um, yeah, I'm pretty much. I've been wanting to to have one of these really since they unveiled it. I mean, I'm really looking forward. Uh, I mean, I have little kids and um, like I'm constantly doing things with my hands. I'm constantly missing calls and missing notifications. And I think just being able to see like, you know, what the next appointment is on my wrist or see a text from my wife or maybe even take a call, you know, uh, from her or something like that uh, through the watch. Um, I think it has a lot of practical benefits. So um, now that may be offset when my uh, soon-to-be four-year-old wants to play with my Apple Watch every second he sees it. But uh, we'll see about that. But keep it on your wrist. Keep it on your wrist. (laughs) Well, even if it's on my wrist, that won't stop him from being very attracted to it. But um, But don't you think he'd be less attracted to that than he would the the phone you pull out of your pocket? Um, possibly, but there's not going to be the games and yeah. Well, it's it's not going to be lit up unless it's got a notification on it. That's true. Lit up all the time. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I don't seriously think that'll be a big problem, but um, but yeah, I think it's. I think it's going to be fun to play with too, and and I think just yeah, the um, geek side of me just wants to get my hands on one to see how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and like little things like weather, like I'm constantly wanting to know, you know, like I've got my you know our, our you know I have our, our 17 month old in my arms, and I'm like, does she need a jacket? Well, if I could just look at my watch and see what the high is going to be today before we leave the house, that kind of thing. I mean, it's just I think those are like the little things that will end up really like getting people sort of addicted to it that maybe they don't realize yet. Kind of like the iPhone where you just, you didn't realize how addicting it is to have that information right at your fingertips. And now it's going to be even closer. And, um, and you know, if, if it makes me pull my phone out of my pocket less, that could also be a good thing too. Um, because when you pull your, I mean, cause the iPhone is now kind of like, where your MacBook is, where you open it up and there's like a billion things it can do. Like you open it to check the weather and then all of a sudden you're on Twitter, then you're an email. Whereas this, just by virtue of it having a smaller display and, and smaller bits of information, it may make it less likely that you all of a sudden lose 20 minutes on your iPhone you know, when you should have been doing something else. I also think that, you know, it kind of tells the rest of the story for the iPhone 6 Plus in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I, I had one that we talked about this on the show, and I really liked a lot about it. I liked the big screen, but I was in an elevator, and someone was trying to text message me, and I was holding a briefcase and something in my right hand, and I pulled the iPhone out of my pocket in my left hand, and I was trying to unlock it without dropping it. And I couldn't. So I had no idea what the message was about. And that's the moment where I said, okay, this just isn't going to work for me. But a lot of that stuff gets transitioned to the wrist at that point where I think it makes the six plus even look like a more attractive device. I I just think it's a really interesting, you know, um, pivot point with all this technology. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why I make a podcast about Apple stuff and write books about it is because I'm a fan of the company. I like the way they kind of make everything work together. And if you're willing to stay in their walled garden, you know, it's a pretty nice garden. So uh, I'm really curious to see what they do. So uh, we're going to see it's sooner than later. Uh, To answer your question, I don't know if I'm going to order one sight unseen because I don't know. I'm definitely getting one. I don't know which one I may want to go in and kind of look at them first. Mm -hmm. I don't don't do we'll it. See. If you do, you may come out with a more expensive one. Stick to your yeah. guns. 
Well, I think I'd be more likely if I order it ahead of time just to get the aluminum one. And that's really where I'm leaning because, you know what, uh, here's the guy who just quit his job. So, you know, I probably <laughs> could do okay with the aluminum one. But the um, but I, I don't want that. What do you call it? Is it the sports strap? Uh, yes. The floralastomer. Yeah. I don't, I just don't think it's going to work for me with the kinds of places I am a lot of times. So I am going to have to add a strap to it. So, which is why you start justifying in your head, we'll just get the fancier one because it's got the better strap. Yeah. That but makes anyway, sense. I've, I've got a few weeks to think about it. So we'll see. Yeah. And you know, the gold one would look so much better with your new gold MacBook, too. So it you would, David. You should, just, you should just get the gold one. <laughs> That's what's exactly. going to happen if you go in a store. You're going to walk out with a gold MacBook and a gold watch. I, I'm pretty sure I will never buy a gold <laughs> Apple anything. I'm pretty sure of that one. If I do, then uh, then aliens will take over my body and Katie will quit the podcast. And we can't have Ma- either Maybe one I won't quit. Maybe I'll just kick you off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's some claim, claim chowder here documented on Mac Power users. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we've been we've been going on for uh, we're about to hit the two hour mark, so we better cut it short here. Um, but Eddie, tell people uh, where they can find you and uh, all the stuff that you're up to these days. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I talk on Twitter all day. So uh, at Eddie underscore Smith, E-D-D-I-E underscore Smith is my Twitter and practically efficient dot com is my blog that I write sporadically at. So those are really the two main places to see what I'm up to. All right. Sounds good. And we'll have links to everything that we talked about this episode in the show notes. You can find that on our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at five by five dot TV slash MPU. Uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, we are at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at Katie Floyd and I am at Max Barkey. Thanks, everyone, for joining us and for hanging out for our extended discussion about uh, the Apple announcements. We don't get to do that very often, uh, but we will uh, be back next time.